Hello. Welcome to the live stream Friday, been a while edition of Unexpected Points. I am your humble narrator, Kevin Cole here. And it's been a pretty good pre-draft section of the calendar here, at least in terms of, you know, the, 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 the mission. The mission of the site, being a thought leader out there in the NFL analytics space, uh, getting some good pickup on some articles recently, getting podcasts done well. The one I did with Mike Renner earlier this week about the draft and getting into some of the process stuff there was by far the most popular podcast that I've done, at least on YouTube. Maybe it got picked up because everyone's in draft fever now on YouTube. So hopefully we can keep that momentum going. Subscribe to the Unexpected Points YouTube channel. That's where I'm going to be doing this here as a live stream, and then I'll throw it out onto the podcast stream, depending upon which way you're listening to it. Uh, Also, if you are not a premium subscriber to the Substack, and you want to, you know, a little loophole for getting the full interview episodes that I am now occasionally, maybe primarily going forward, putting behind the paywall, um, YouTube. That's your way. Circumvent the old paywall there. Get on YouTube. The entire episodes are posted there. Please subscribe to as I get up. I don't know. I think you need a thousand YouTube subscribers to get um, the ability to really push it out there more and get a lot more um, potential like marketing basically off of it. And, and we're getting there. Hopefully we'll get there before the beginning of the season there. So go ahead and do that. Um, but if you can't afford a sub also, you know, shoot me a DM or something like that. I'm comping people six month free sub, no questions asked when that happens. If you are watching live here and if you want to fire me any questions for the Q and a, which I'll have at the end after discussing a few things here, I prepared a few things here. I'm not going to be totally rambling off the top of my head. Um, go ahead in the comments, Fire one in there. Maybe title it Q&A at the beginning just so I don't miss it. I don't think I'm going to be overwhelmed by comments, but you never know when people start arguing about, you know, Lamar Jackson or something in in the comments because I'll be talking about him and some some bad usage of stats re Lamar Jackson as part of this episode. The way it's going to play play out is, A, I'm going to discuss a little bit some of the research I've done. For those who haven't had a chance to check it out, uh, some of it's behind the paywall, so this will be a little like glimpse behind, you know, what's behind the paywall a little bit here. If you're watching on YouTube, I'll bring it up on the screen so you can actually see it, but I'll also talk it through for anyone listening on the podcast so they get a good idea of uh, some of the conclusions there. So th- that'll be the first somewhat abbreviated segment there. Number two, I'm having a, a segment which I call somewhat tongue-in-cheek tongue uh, when keeping it analytical goes wrong. Uh, off of the Chappelle show when keeping it real goes wrong. And it's basically like a bad use of numbers or saying the, the numbers say X, the analytics say X, they're saying this, but it's not really done in the correct way. It's more backing into a point. Um, there's a lot of bias behind certain numbers, you know, numbers don't lie. Some of those things will, of course they can be used incorrectly. So I'm going to talk about that some regarding the Lamar Jackson, uh, ben Roethlisberger thing this week about his pocket passing stats, what they do or do not tell us, and the degree of certainty that we should really have in the stats that are being presented is if they are debunking or disproving or uh, proving, maybe, if you want to look at it from that perspective, who Lamar Jackson 
uh, is as far as a pocket passer in the NFL. I think it's more of an open question that some people really believe on there. So it'll be that part. A little bit of a stick to sports segment. This is a this is something I was thinking about, but it's it's a little dated at this point. About uh, you know, this is like a non sports sort of thing, but it has to deal with analytics, and that is uh, what happened with this thing with Nature Magazine and endorsing president in the past and i don't really care about the endorsement i don't care about any of the political side of it i care more about like the biases when it comes to saying we've done x we've studied x x was completely ineffective uh actually less than ineffective was costly to do it but yet we're still going to stand by what we've done um kind of flying in the face of the you know follow the science type of of crowd and meaning and when people just kind of lose their rationality when it comes to certain things, uh, when they have to prove a point beyond that. Like, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to accomplish something or are we trying to feel good about ourselves in some way? So that'll be the, the stick to sports part. And then, then Q&A. Then we'll do a Q&A at the end. So hopefully I won't have lost everyone uh, by then when we get to the Q&A at the end. But first, let's go ahead and bring up some of the research for this week. I'll talk about it quickly. I'll probably build a little bit upon what has been um, what has been talked about as far as in the actual text itself. And then first we'll just bring this up here. Uh, let me put myself here. So if anyone's watching on YouTube, again, you'll be able to see this on here. This is the site that I'm bringing up here. So we'll go two pieces of research really came out this week. Um, I don't think I'm not going to go back to the Anthony Richardson QB hypes hype cycle piece that I did last week. I'll talk a little bit about that in reference to something that's mentioned as part of the Lamar Jackson discussion today. But really, the two different pieces were looking at some successful uh, quarterback prospect traits, trying to quantify some of this unquantifiable type of stuff. This also leans a little bit into the discussion this week with S2. If anyone's seen, S2 has kind of taken over as far as part of the discussion. I trashed it a little bit. And then, and then I reached out to the guy who's a founder on S2 because I wanted to talk to him and he saw that I was trashing a little bit. So I think he's hesitant at best to do the podcast, but he seemed pretty generous. So maybe I'll get him on. And I wasn't really trashing S2 itself. It was more like people's reactions to S2, which is, ends up happening to me sometimes. It's like sometimes the tool is not bad. The measurement is not bad. What annoys me, and this is when it comes to draft evaluation and other things too. Like I don't hate film evaluators. I hate it when film evaluators take their particular point and then you know make it the gospel or project it past how it should be framed as part of this so that could also be said so people could say that i'm doing that a little bit if you just look at a superficial level like data mining in a way what the quantifiable trait uh uh numbers are for quarterback prospects that maybe apply to who's good in the nfl now what i try to do and if you if you dig into the article you would see this. Um, what I try to do, though, is just copiously add caveats to the article. And I even mentioned, you know, right in the first paragraph about, you know, this could be viewed as an exercise in data mining, but what we're trying not to do is, you know, we are trying to find insights, but sometimes you can kind of be like fitting, overfitting the the numbers to what you've seen in the past. And especially when we're talking about a situation where, oh, someone's asking what S2 is. So maybe I'll explain it a little bit. So S2 is a cognitive quarterback oh it's it's across position testing but it's especially been talked about in quarterbacks now where they're tested multiple times through like the qb clinics these guys have been tested even when they were in high school sometimes and through college and through other things where it's been compared in some ways to the wonder lick the wonder lick is kind of like an iq test 
So this is a little bit different. This has something where, again, I'm probably butchering the, the, what the actuality is here, but I'll just, it's an idea. It's, it's like a spatial awareness you're getting. You have to track different objects on the screen. You have to see flashes of things and then be able to identify things. So it's supposed to be more of an instinctual, intuitive ability to process information, uh, spatial awareness, all these sorts of things. And it's becoming a bigger and bigger deal. Um, they're talking about it in regards, especially to this quarterback class. And again, you don't know anyone's numbers. They're not providing anyone's numbers. I think the company is working with two teams, a maximum of two teams in each division. So two of the four teams in each division. And they're providing the data. And there's nine different things that they're measured on. And what they found is, and if you look in their blog posts, it's, it's like the quarterbacks who have been successful and they look at a career quarterback rating as part of that, those who qualify to have enough playing time at that point the quarterbacks who have been successful have been much better at this this score this test and no one who has done very very poorly on this test has been successful in the nfl according to their definition now a lot of again when you're talking about who's successful um who what score is the threshold like you can move these things around a lot to fit the data right like has I know Justin Fields is a guy they've talked about not they've talked about but has been revealed you know knocked it out of the park well has Justin Fields been successful I don't know I mean I think they said you need a 90 quarterback rating a career quarterback rating to be successful now for Fields it's a little bit it's it's bad that it doesn't include his running but it's good that it doesn't include his sacks because quarterback rating does not include sacks so quarterback rating I'm looking here on um pfr pro football reference i don't have the shirt on today unfortunately so quarterback rating we're talking about traditional quarterback rating not espn's qbr so you had a 73.2 as a rookie and 85.2 in the second season so you know he doesn't have that 90 career mark it's it's close though he was 85 last season but again if you were gonna like include sacks in that again he led the nfl in sacks he was like head and shoulders above the entire rest of the nfl as far as sack percentage a 15 percent sack rate where most players i don't know if there's anyone else in the nfl above 10 percent um so his numbers look a little bit better that by that but you can you know you can adjust and figure out the definitions that'll end up fitting the the data so that's my concern about these things a little bit and it's more how people are interpreting these things because you have people in the news media just the other day lance uh, zerline who's a main uh evaluator you know draft guy at nfl he was talking about the fact that there are rumors that cj stroud has a poor score and maybe that's why he's following there's it's pretty much out there that Bryce Young has one of the highest scores ever. It came to the forefront when there was a whole article written in The Athletic about how Brock Purdy scored very, very well on this test. Of course, this is like after the fact when Purdy did well, you know, at the end of the season, they talked about how he scored well on this test. And was that an indicator of maybe he was better than you would have thought, especially for being Mr. Irrelevant. I mean, he's the last pick. So obviously it probably didn't influence his draft position that much, but didn't influence how good he was. Sounds like there might be a little bit more of an influence on draft position this year because the the rumor mill is Bryce Young, extremely high score. Anthony Richards, Richardson, good score. Levis, I'm not sure, but I think pretty good score. And nobody really knows with C.J. Stroud, which is being interpreted as maybe bad score. So is that going to knock him out of being the number one pick when the owner of the Panthers, David Tepper, is supposedly into this sort of stuff? Is that going to knock him off of being the number one pick? 
Is that going to knock him out of potentially being the number two pick, which you're starting to hear rumors about the fact that he may not even be number two, that the Texans may go non-quarterback there instead, or Richardson instead, or someone else going up and get Richardson. We'll see, but S2 has become a big thing, and hopefully I'll hopefully I'll get this guy in for an interview and be fair, and we can talk about it a little bit more. But uh, back to my research, in a similar sort of way, you know, I when you have so few successful prospects and again my my definition of success might even be more narrow than what they're using because i'm really saying who are these quarterbacks that everyone knows are a success so i'm putting into this bucket the guys that everyone knows is a success and maybe you wouldn't not everyone's going to agree on this and i think trevor lawrence may even be a year early but i'm putting him in there because of his generational prospect sort of status when i'm looking over the last several years and I don't have a lot of data on this stuff when it comes to pressure or non-pressure beyond what PFF provides, which goes back to 2014. So I'm saying 2015 draft class and on. The guys I'm labeling as a success, Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson. Now I know Deshaun Watson, a little bit iffy, but he, he was in that category before. Uh, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson in 2018. Uh, twenty And then nothing in 2019. So Kyler, I'm not putting him in that bucket yet. 2020. Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert in 2021, Trevor Lawrence. So these are the guys where I would say, and maybe it's not even the case with Jackson as we're seeing right now, but I would say generally for these guys, it's like blank check type of guys. You pay them what you want. You trade anything for them. These are really the guys that we're talking about here. If you want to expand success a little bit more, Jalen Hurts may fall into that bucket. But again, we're talking about one strong year for him so far, one breakout year for him. Uh, Tua could fall into that bucket with one, breakout year in his third season and the confidence level we have in them as I mentioned here like Carson Wentz and Jared Goff were probably seen at equivalent points in their careers as being successes and do we know at this point you know not really I mean not at this point do we did we know at that point no not really and they kind of fallen off after that so the things that I looked at and these are things that I've looked at in the past are first of all what's sticky what's sticky is is important what transfers over from college to the NFL. And I think that's led to some good stuff. And I think scramble rate and sack rate are fairly sticky. So I want to stick to those as really being quarterback traits, especially scramble rate. And it's an important thing to be able to scramble in the NFL. Uh, It's more and more of an important thing. Maybe not as important as some people think it is like it's you're, you're out if you can't scramble, but it's an important thing. And those are sticky. And then on the flip side, you know, clean pocket stats are stickier because you have a higher volume of them. Clean pockets are all more similar to each other, whereas pressure can be a bunch of different things. It could be three guys in your face, or it could be you're rolling out and you have a clean view down the field because you had a little bit of pressure up the middle. Um, so pressure stats aren't as sticky, but they seem to lend themselves, at least I'm finding them lend themselves, if someone is relatively good against pressure versus from a clean pocket. And I'm comparing those two things to each other rather than independently. So if someone's relatively good under pressure, that is showing, maybe even perhaps showing some of the stuff that the S2 model is showing, that they're able to process a lot of information very quickly, spatial awareness to avoid the rush and still see down the field. They're probably not on their first read if they're seeing pressure. They could probably get the ball off very quickly to their first read if they're seeing pressure. And this is not happening there. So I look at that as part of it in addition to it. So scramble and sack rate first, if you look at the guys who are really, really good at pressured sack rate, then of course you can't take a sack if you're not pressured. So, but when they are pressured, I'm going to eliminate all these clean pockets because obviously you're not going to take a sack from a clean pocket. So pressured sack rate, 
and then pressured scramble rate. Now you can scramble when you're not pressured, but I want to look to see like what are guys doing in these situations where they have to make something happen. And the red flag here, maybe I'll start with that, would be Hendon Hooker. So he's near the 100th percentile, almost at the 100th percentile when it comes to scramble rate, which again can be okay. 100th percentile is a little extreme. Um, you like to see quarterbacks execute the actual play. They don't have like a failed sort of play there. Uh, and then the the bad part is pressured sack rate. He's also almost at 100th percentile for both of those things. So Hendon Hooker now, when he is pressured, he's not throwing a pass. So the ball is not leaving his hand half of the time that he's pressured last season. Half of the time, more than half of the time, he's either running, scrambling, or he's taking a sack. He's not executing what they have. A little bit of a warning sign for me. The other guys who were in this ballpark in their final seasons, Marcus Mariota and Justin Fields, who we talked about a little bit earlier. Fields still has the highest pressure to sack rate in the NFL. He still has, I believe, the highest pressure to scramble rate in the NFL. So he's number one in the NFL. This has been very sticky for him. He's scrambling and he's always getting sacked when he's getting pressured. He's not executing. Uh, Marcus Mariota was a top 10 guy or no, maybe top eight guy in pressured sack rate last season and was multiple times throughout his career. He was also a guy who scrambled a decent amount. Not good. Not like fields, not like fields in the NFL, probably because he got injured a lot. So he stopped doing it. But still, that, that it has to be pretty sticky for them. Uh, another guy who's a bit – and another thing with Hooker, I look back two seasons. If you go back even to Hooker's uh, 2021 season, um, I have the information here. Okay. So he was in – so for this season, he's in the 99th percentile for scramble rate, 96.5 percentile for sack rate. 2021 – 98th percentile for scramble rate, 99th percentile for sack rate. So this is two straight seasons. Whereas Levis is, again, he's a problem this season, 93rd percentile for sack rate. But if you go back a season, it does drop down to 64th percentile. So like not totally disqualifying. If you look at guys who are hits here, um, Joe Burrow had a 56th percentile for his sack rate. Now we've seen that transfer over though, right? To the pros, he's still taking a lot of sacks. Um, but Levis was better at scrambling in 2021 and better at not taking sacks. So I'm a little bit less concerned about him, but he had some red flags there. Now, as far as the, the guys who look pretty good in this in this category, it's Anthony Richardson. So this is something I'll give a lot of credit to Richardson. I know people might think I'm a Richardson hater because of the article last week where I pointed to his accuracy being a potential problem that'll stick, that'll transfer over to the NFL. Well, as far as this is concerned, we're talking about managing a pocket, managing a tough situation, keeping your cool under pressure, all those sorts of things. Richardson's great. Very, very low pressure sack rate. Pretty much the best of when we look at all these quarterbacks who have gone in the first round or second round in the NFL. And he's good. He's pretty high scramble rate, 75th percentile, but not so much that you like be worried about it or something that he has to scramble, especially when he's not taking sacks also. Um, so that looks really good. Stroud and Bryce Young, also in that good category. They're right next to guys like Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson. Um, Trevor Lawrence is in the neighborhood, those sorts of guys. Now, there are other guys who, who stink who are in that neighborhood, like Paxton Lynch. Paxton Lynch is like my – I hate Paxton Lynch so much. <laughs> I, I shouldn't say that. I hate Paxton Lynch. I hate the fact that he's like messes up a lot of my 
uh, data mining. When I try to go back, it's like Paxton Lynch keeps on showing up. Is looking good all over the place. And he's like a, a huge bust. I mean, he's a late first round pick. So it's not like a bust as a number. He's not like a Jamarcus Russell type of bust, but man, bad, bad, bad stuff. I mean, Carson Wentz shows up there who was a hit before he wasn't a hit. Uh, Jared Goff's not bad. who was a hit before he wasn't a hit. That sort of thing. Josh Allen's kind of more in the middle there. Herbert doesn't look good. Herbert's over in the very low scramble rate. His sack rate is a bad, very low scramble rate. But again, he's a guy where if you look back a year to his year before his final season, he had a 56th percentile scramble rate. It went down to 11th percentile. So he can do it. And, and he tested, like he tested extremely well. So he can do it. He can move probably less of a concern than what we saw there. So that's the one thing. Scrack, sacks and scrambles. And again, this pointing to Richardson, Young, Stroud, good. Levis, eh. Hooker, god awful. And then we go to against this is versus the pressure and versus the blitz. Now, this is a little bit of a weird one because blitz does not have that much of a signal to it. And I think it's because like blitzes can either be pressured or unpressured. And you play for a good team, you don't get pressured as much on the blitz. So that may have something to do with it. But there's definitely more signal when we talk about relative pressure yards per attempt. And again, I'm comparing like their it's basically their pressured yards per attempt, subtracting from that their clean pocket yards per attempt. So like how much worse are they? And the 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 less negative the number, the better. And then we look at it a percentile ranking. So Levis, really, really good, actually, his pressure performance versus what he did from a clean pocket. Bryce Young, really, really good. And then the other guys are not so good. Hooker's down there low. Richardson's down there low. And um, Stroud is down there really, really low. Now, part of that is like he's so awesome from a clean pocket that it has a high bar for what he has to hit under pressure. Stroud was so, so good from a clean pocket. But if you believe this S2 stuff about him not necessarily having the most uh, react quick reaction, uh, spatial ability, you know, second reads, that sort of stuff. You know, maybe, maybe this his his troubles under pressure, relative troubles under pressure. Maybe that lends into it a little bit. I know everyone sees that Georgia game at the end of the season where he did well under pressure and they think he's good under pressure. Well, he he wasn't. He was not very good under pressure. He had a poor grade also under pressure this year, uh, last year I should say, and he was relatively poor the year before too. So that could be the red flag for for Stroud. So it's this analysis again. It's 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 not the be all end all. You know, guys who had relatively good pressure rates sometimes still fail, like Kaiser or Mariota or Paxton Lynch, Paxton Lynch, but or Sam Darnold. But there are also guys, you know, Mahomes, Watson, Burrow, who fit into that category. Herbert a little bit into that category. Josh Allen at least close. At least you get closer with Allen, who doesn't give you a lot from a prospect perspective to lean on analytically. Um, and Lamar Jackson also overperformed un- under pressure, did, did better under pressure than you'd expect. So at least it's a little bit of something. And when you look at, okay, who are the guys who hit all the marks? Bryce Young's the only guy from this class who really does. Um, along with in the past, Burrow, Jordan Love, Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes. Deshaun Watson, Paxton Lynch, again, shaking my fist right here. Uh, and then Mariota and Winston are pretty close. Now, Mariota, you'd probably be freaked out by the fact that he had that huge, huge sack rate. And Winston had a really bad last season after having, I guess, I guess that was his redshirt um, sophomore season after having a great redshirt freshman season. And, you know, I think Winston at least was probably seen as being a decent hit after a few years in the NFL. And then it just it just failed after that. 
So that's kind of really the 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 wrap up for for this particular piece of research. Now, if we go back to the the other one I did this week, it was building a more useful NFL draft big board. This is I basically turned my social media complaints into a research piece saying, okay, you know what? I'm tired of this like position agnostic. Let's just take grades and then sort all the players onto a big board and say, you guys figure it out or don't even acknowledge or just talk past with things like best player available. The fact that there is positional value. So I've already done studies on positional value, which are part of that, which I have some illustrations on looking at by position, uh, the surplus value as time goes by. Uh, but here, what I basically did was I said, I'm going to take these grades from Sports Info Solutions. Sports Info Solutions got some pretty cool grades that are that are going on. They have a whole draft site. They have grading for all the players. But when they do their big board, they just list them by grade. So they say, Will Anderson is number one on our big board because his grade is 7.2. Jalen Carter is 7.0. So he's second, which puts them into this kind of high-end category. B. John Robinson is third because he's 7.0, which is also in the high-end category. And then we're going to put Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud, fourth and fifth, at 6.9. So they're only one-tenth of a point lower in grade. They're almost equivalent when it comes to being a high-end quarterback versus a high-end running back, but yet they're listed below on the big board. So I said, you know what? Let's take these position-specific grades, and they list out what it means. They have descriptions for their different grading levels. Let's take that. Let's use the descriptions. Let's figure out how much they're worth when it comes to second contracts. Let's apply that second contract value to the grade that would equivalent grade value based on position. Then we know how much you have to pay these guys because that's set in advance, how much you pay the draft picks. And boom, from there, we can we can put together um, our our draft board and we can say, okay, we can put first and second Bryce Young and CJ Stroud because they're graded as going to be a solid starting quarterback, not high end, but solid starting starting quarterback. And like it or not, that's probably a $40 million value proposition per season over the next four years. I think they're, I think they're, they're more of a question mark, even the high end, even a number one pick is probably more of a question mark than just penciling them in for solid starting quarterback. But you know, Daniel Jones just got a $40 million a year contract and it's only going up over the next four years. So if you give them those, that sort of value, you just got to take them. And now for Anthony Richardson, Will Levis and Hendon Hooker, they're graded lower as lower end starting quarterback. But even then the Jimmy Garoppolo's of the world, um, you know, guys like in that sort of category, I guess Derek Carr would be more in the solid, but Derek Carr is like solid and maybe a little bit lower sort of thing, you know, saying 25 to 27 and a half million for these guys is probably a fair amount for how much they're worth. So it puts them into three, four, and five as far as their value ranking, even though just by position agnostic grading, they would be 32, 33, and 57 on this chart. And then it goes to the Will Andersons and Jalen Carters of the world. But if you really look at positions, this is when it's key. It's edge rusher, interior defender, you know, defensive tackle who can really rush the passer, offensive tackle. Those are the tier one positions. Those are all the guys that are filling out my top 10. If you go further down into who fills out the rest of the round, it's edge defenders. You start to get some wide receivers. The wide receiver cornerback question is interesting. Like as of now, the equivalent grade, I would rank higher the wide receiver because wide receiver salaries have gone way up. 
you know, with AJ Brown's contract, with um, Devontae Adams' contract, with Tyreek Hill's contract. These guys are getting paid. They're getting paid more than cornerbacks. Cornerbacks been very incremental at the top. You had Ramsey sign his big deal. Then you had that wasn't topped until Denzel Ward signed for, I think, 100,000 more or something. It was just absurd how they're just trying to put him slightly, slightly over. Then Jair Alexander slightly, slightly over that, but it's still trailing by millions of dollars. The top cornerbacks are still trailing by millions of dollars, what you're seeing at other positions. So wide receiver gets a little bit of an edge over cornerback, but those are the two tier two positions, non-quarterback tier two positions. I even have two more quarterbacks in here. Nah, I don't know if I would actually do this or not, but they have starter trades, a 6.4 grade, which isn't that bad for Tanner McKee and Jake Hainer, I guess. <laughs> Sorry, I don't even follow. I haven't done my major research into the non-top five quarterbacks. So they have these two guys in here. And if I'm estimating they're like a $14 million value, they're above some of these lower end edge rushers. They're above Bijan Robinson, who I fall, I throw him all the way down to the end of the first round at best, even though he had the third highest grade because a top high end three down starter at running back on a second contract. And again, he's on the low end of the three down high end starter grades. It's like $14 million a year. And most people probably regret it when, when they sign those. Uh, most teams regret it when they're signing those, those types of contracts. And I go all the way through the top 100. But it's basically saying, let's you know stop complaining about what other people are doing here. Let's just throw in the actual numbers amounts and we get a much, much better draft board here. A draft board that I'm going to use on draft night, update and then use on draft night to try to get an idea of what sort of actual surplus value teams are getting from these picks versus what they may think they're getting. When you have you know running backs going early. I mean, another example would be the top safety here. I have at 47 versus he's 12 in the grading, Brian Branch, just because safety is so devalued. It's basically like running back now. Uh, maybe a little bit higher uh, on the higher end for guys. So that's one to keep an eye on. I would say for him, where is he going to go? Uh, Jameer Gibbs running back. That's another pl- guy to keep an eye on. I have him down at 74. He has the 11th highest grade here. Uh, John Michael Schmitz. I don't know how that everyone views him, but he's 14th highest grade according to SIS as a center. So I have him saying, Hey, this is a guy I would not take be- before the beginning of the third round unless you have him as an elite, elite type of player. And even then, it would probably only get him into the second round, not the first round. Um, That's something to watch. uh, Tight end, I'm a little bit conflicted on. I have one guy in the first round, Michael Mayer in the first round, the 24th. And then Darnell Washington falls into the second round. I could probably go a little bit higher on them because I think you get better value on second contracts for tight ends than you do on first contracts. But, you know, tight ends just don't make a lot of money. So if you're going purely on how much they're making, which I think is devalued because the franchise tag is so low, the teams have so much leverage on them. Um, that's where they go, but you could make an adjustment based upon that also. All right, let's let's get to some of the other stuff here. Okay, we're, 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 through, we're, th- we're through the research for the week. Let's talk about a couple other things. One is going to be when keeping an analytical goes wrong. Actually, I have, my, I have my When Keeping It Real Goes Wrong. For those who don't remember, Chappelle Show. You're watching When Keeping It Real Goes Wrong. Yeah, so, so instead of keeping it real, it's keeping analytical goes wrong. So bad use of stats. For those who don't know, our, our boy Ben Roethlisberger, he's not my boy. Everyone, everyone seems to hate Ben Roethlisberger for some reason. I guess, you know, obviously he had his, he had his issues. Um, turned his life over to God, though. 
and over to Jesus. And he had a quote. So the quote, I should probably pull up the exact quote so I can get it correctly here. So the, the exact quote that was aggregated, my, my boys back at PFF really got him on this one. So the quote from Roethlisberger, re Lamar Jackson, is, quote, you don't fear him just sitting in the pocket and picking you apart. End quote. So that's, so that, that's it. And then everyone jumped all over this. And before I get into what everyone's jumping all over, I always like to like actually listen to the context to see what it sounds like. I don't even think it's that ridiculous of a, like a thing to say as some people might think it is a thing to say just on its face. But even so, like, let's let's look at the context a little bit here. Try to get an idea um, before we pile all over uh, a Ben on this one. So this is from the podcast. This is this is this is exactly what he was saying. And it had to do with the fact that Odell Beckham Jr. signed with the Ravens. And he's talking about how that's going to affect things now as far as how defenses have to play the Ravens. That's 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 the even larger context there. But here's what Ben had to say deal it is that's a that's 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 a big boost yeah because you better put a safety. you know with lamar you want to bring safeties down to stop help stop the run because you're not you don't really fear lamar's arm um his accuracy all the time sure he's got a huge arm he can make things happen when he scrambles and whatever but you don't fear him just sitting in the pocket and picking you apart sure. so you can bring safeties down because you you do fear him running because he's a different level runner so you fear that. Yeah. So you bring safeties down. But now, if you got that guy on the outside, you better put a safety back, or it's one on one. You can just throw it to him. Mm-hmm. So it, it definitely creates um, some potential opportunities for that that offense and and for um, Lamar to run if he has to, or to take those big shots down the field if he if he needs to. If they're bringing the safeties down. Yeah. Okay, so I actually don't think this is like that misquoting him or something like that. He's pretty much saying you don't really fear him when he's passing. And although part of the interpretation could be like you don't fear him sitting back in the pocket and passing because like he doesn't do it. So that was part of my response to this is saying, okay, like I get it. You're you're, you're getting on him because you're using these numbers, and we'll talk about that in a second. But just purely – like how often someone does something, Ben Roethlisberger, and I don't have the pocket in the pocket, out of the pocket, but we're going to presume Ben Roethlisberger stays in the pocket. You know, in 2020, before he kind of started to fall off, he had non-play action, non-screen, non-scramble, because he's not doing a lot of scrambling, but non-scramble dropbacks, right? He had something like 560 dropbacks in 2020, where he wasn't using any of those things. He's just dropping, straight dropping back the pass. It was, I mean, he, he dropped back a ridiculous number of times during that season in total. But he's still, we're talking about, you know, when he drops back the pass, 85% of the time, he's not using, there's no gimmicks to it. He's just dropping back the pass. Whereas if you took that same number for Lamar Jackson in that season, it was something like 245 times. So, less than half the number of times that he's just dropping back, no play action, no um, scrambling, no screen passes. He's just not doing it as often. And, but then the problem is we have like the stats, the stats start coming out now. And the main stat that comes out is Bill Barnwell. He quote tweets this. He puts out 
ESPN has passer rating. I mean, forget forget about my complaints about passer rating, but passer rating in the pocket dating back to 2009. So obviously well before Lamar started in 2018. Uh, Ben started a bit earlier than that, but that's fine. Says Lamar Jackson's pocket passer rating is 97.9. Ben Roethlisberger pocket passer rating 94.2. And it says, if you prefer QBR, it's basically a 65 for Jackson versus a 63.4 for Roethlisberger. So that's taken and put out there as like, see, Lamar's good in the pocket. Look at his numbers. And then um, another analytically friendly analyst, Mina Kimes, talks about that. And she just, and she says about this whole thing about Lamar, the thing that's frustrating is there is that People lean on the same tired tropes, all of which have been disproven, she says, as part of this. Has been disproven. And I think it's kind of wrapped up in this clip. This is a clip of Joy Taylor talking on the show where she's talking about it. She's talking about these exact numbers that Bill Barnwell is talking about. And this is when it becomes a thing and people start using it and it, it, and it jumps off of – one quote from social media dunked on in the quote tweets with, in my opinion, some bad stats. And I'll go into why more that's not, well, not perfect stats rather than bad stats. And then boom, it becomes a talking point on these different shows. Wants mobile quarterbacks, right? Like you can't draft a pocket passer anymore. You can't do it. If a guy is in the draft and he is a statue in the pocket, he will drop in the draft. You will, it will be a negative thing. But if Okay, so so I was I was only including that part about the negative pocket faster because I actually kind of don't believe that we're going too far based upon recent results. But anyway, here's here's the most more important part, which she's talking about running quarterbacks and how how people view them. And this is what this is the counter. He runs, if he runs and he's elite at it, then he can't throw. Even if the numbers the numbers say something different. There's a lot of them on those cards. <laughs> the reason that this frustrates me, Ben Roethlisberger is a Hall of Famer. We would not classify him as a runner. Certainly not in the back half of his career. Correct. He is a Hall of Famer for throwing the ball. And Lamar Jackson has what? One more time for the people. Dave, please. The numbers. Uh, A better passer rating from the pocket. 97.9 versus 94.2. I need answers. Okay, so you see that they took, when when they mentioned those numbers, they took the exact numbers that Bill Barnwell had put out there. Okay, now let me explain why. I do not believe this is a good usage of numbers for Lamar Jackson. I think Lamar Jackson is a little bit problematic generally. Like we need to be able to have a rational discussion. I put out a piece about Lamar a couple of weeks ago where there was some good, there was some bad. I came away with a little bit of a different impression than I thought I was going to have going into it. I don't think a lot of people do that when it comes to numbers and Lamar Jackson. I think people have an impression and then they go and they go find the numbers that like backs up what their impression is. Um, Steven Ruiz wrote an article about, you know, teams still don't understand Lamar Jackson a couple of weeks ago. And as part of this article, which I pointed out to them and, you know, it wasn't updated, but I pointed out to them the fact that he says, you know, the conversation around Lamar hasn't changed over the last decade. Many still question his passing ability, even though he ranks fourth in expected points per play amongst quarterbacks with at least 22 dropbacks since 2018. Well, expected points per play includes scrambles. Expected points per play includes design runs. Like, why would that be his passing stat there, right? Um, If you just look at actual passes, Lamar drops to being about middle of the pack for the guys who've had 2,000 dropbacks. Um, Not not quite there. So what I think we have to do is when you're thinking about, this is like a selection bias thing. 
Selection bias is everywhere for almost every single stat. You can't simply look at the efficiency of a stat when a guy is doing it half the amount of time that someone else is doing it. Volume tells you something about ability. Okay? Efficiency is not the same. If Lamar Jackson was going to drop back without play action, all those different numbers that I talked about, like Ben Roethlisberger, if he was going to do that 560 times in a season, I think his efficiency is going to suffer when that happens. I don't think that's a controversial take. Um, my analogy, and I'm going to be dating myself a little bit here, and it's not a perfect analogy. I mean, analogies never are. But my analogy would be, um, if you look back at like pitching, you have different types of pitches you can use. In the NFL, you have different types of ways you can gain yards. Mark Jackson can scramble. He can run. The team can run. They can do play action. Or he could just drop back and sit back and pass which is what Roethlisberger does a ton, which is what Roethlisberger says that you don't fear Lamar Jackson doing, which is what he doesn't do, right? He doesn't do it. Whether you should fear him doing it or not, he doesn't do it to the same degree that other quarterbacks do. So we think about, like, you have different types of pitches. You have a fastball, you have off-speed, you know, curveball, slider, split finger, whatever you have, <laughs> you have forkball, knuckleball. Okay, knuckleball, you're not really mixing in there, but I, I, I'm, I'm taking this too far here. But anyway, so you have these different types of pitches. And... Um, and again, this is when I come to dating myself because I don't know any pitchers anymore. But if you think about a pitcher like Greg Maddox, if you remember Greg Maddox, again, 57 years old now, Greg Maddox, uh, a killer during the 90s, not a guy you would ever associate with tremendous speed on his fastball, great accuracy, great location. But, you know, he wasn't like a big fastball pitcher, yet he won the Cy Young Award, four straight seasons in the mid-90s. He was the ERA leader four different times for the entire major league. So if I were to say to you, like Greg Maddox, great pitcher, great, you do everything, highly effective, but you're not, you don't fear Greg Maddox rearing back and throwing you a fastball every single pitch. You don't fear that. It wouldn't work. It would not work as well. Now, his fastball, but yet if you looked at his fastball stats versus a great fastball pitcher, as far as maybe not strikeouts as much, but probably even strikeouts, but you know how often they're how often strike to ball ratio, how often you're getting guys out, how often you're actually making an out on fastballs. Greg Maddox was probably really, really, really good. Excellent good. Or else he wouldn't throw it, right? It's part of his arsenal. It would have looked really, really good because you have to worry about his off speed. Because you have to worry about his location on others. Because you got to worry about his slider that he's using. You have to worry about the completeness of him. But that doesn't mean that you would put fastball stats up for Greg Maddox versus... I don't know. I'm sure he's better than like Roger Clemens some of those years. Um, It doesn't mean you put those stats up and you'd say, look, he's just as good at throwing fastballs as Roger Clemens. No. Like the stats, the average stats are not telling you the full picture. This was also part of the discussion with Russell Wilson where I leaned back. I pushed back against some people even when it comes to the let Russ cook thing. It's like we're learning something from the fact that he's not throwing a lot versus someone like Mahomes when there was an actual Mahomes versus Wilson type of discussion after maybe 2019. Like it tells you something. 
you can't use the stats this way. You can't just use the averages. Volume is also telling you something, telling you a lot of something. I mean, the most common place we see this as a mistake is probably yards per target for wide receivers because they're so dependent on other things. Yeah, it's good to be an efficient wide receiver, but if you're being targeted a lot, that also means something. That also changes the composition of the quality of the targets that you're getting if you're being targeted a lot, which is going to lower your yards per target. A guy who can put up amazing yards per target on 20 targets isn't going to be able to do that if he was being force-fed 100 targets in a season. Same thing here with Lamar Jackson. I would bet that he is not as good of a pocket passer as Ben Roethlisberger was. I don't think that's controversial to say. I would bet that he's not one of the best pocket passers in the NFL, even if his numbers might say that. But that doesn't take away from it. We don't have to defend every single aspect of him that goes beyond what we can really say. And I'll also say when it comes to the pocket passing thing, um, I don't have, again, I don't have pocket passing numbers, but the best thing that I think you can really point to, if you want to point to passing and quarterbacks and, you know, how much you should fear them or not, how much can they execute under any situation, I would say third and long is really an interesting one because the defense knows you're going to throw the ball. The throw rates beyond five yards are well into the 90s percent. You're almost never running. Maybe nowadays a little bit if you're trying to set up a fourth down in that no man's land on the other team's side of the field. Like if you're on the 45-yard line for the other the other team and you're trying to like set up a fourth down, that happens a bit more now. But generally, defenses are approaching that third and long like we know this team is going to pass. We know it. So, you know, Lamar Jackson overall since 2018, number four in the NFL, beyond only behind guys like Mahomes and Rodgers and, and Brady in EPA per play on any down, right? He's that high. Yet, if you look at the numbers, and I'm going all the way back to 2010 here because I want to get some good Roethlisberger years here. If you look at the numbers, throwing a pass, so I'm not counting scrambling, throwing a pass on, well, I guess I'm counting sacks, but I'm not counting scrambles here. So no scramble, third down, at least six, five yards to go. Wait, hold on. Let me check to make sure I'm saying this correctly. Uh, oh, sorry. At least six yards to go. So even beyond five yards. At least six yards to go, third down. Let's look at their EPA per drop back on these types of plays. These plays are teams know you're going to throw the ball, right? Okay. I have – let me see. What did I set the – I set it at um, – Let's set the dropback amount. So at least 250 dropbacks in these situations because, again, it's, it's a narrow sort of thing. So there are 50 different quarterbacks who have at least 250 dropbacks since 2010 on third down in six or more where they don't scramble. Mahomes, number one. EPA per dropback here, 0.33. Jimmy Garoppolo, my man, number two, 0.3. <laughs> He's actually way above Drew Brees next, believe it or not. So Drew Brees next. Matt Ryan next. Four. Um, Justin Herbert, five. Tom Brady, six. Ben Roethlisberger, seven at point one six. So it's it's not you know not close to Mahomes, but right but right behind Tom Brady. Philip Rivers next, point one five. Then Derek Carr, believe it or not, after that Joe Burrow, Aaron Rodgers, so on and so forth. Out of fifty, where do you think Lamar Jackson? rates ranks out of 50 guys 
on third and six or more yards to go where you know they're going to pass the ball. Lamar Jackson is 44th, negative 0.1 EPA per dropback in these circumstances. He is, the guys who are back here, Jared Goff, 41st, Eli Manning, 42nd. Poor Eli. Of course, he's back there. A lot of that is because, you know, again, his, his career didn't go so hot near the end. Uh, Baker Mayfield, then Lamar Jackson, then Sam Bradford, Mitch Trubisky. The only guys who were worse. Sam Bradford, Mitch Trubisky, Sam Darnold, Ryan Tannehill. And Tannehill, I assume, has gotten better since he's coming to Tennessee. Uh, Mark Sanchez and Blake Bortles. That's it. That's where Lamar Jackson is when you know he's going to pass the ball. I think that's a better stat. If you're saying, do you fear a guy in a situation where you know he's going to go back and pass the ball? I don't think it's a complete stat. I don't think Lamar Jackson is the, you know, worse than Baker Mayfield in those situations or one of the worst quarterbacks. I don't think he should be, you know, 44 out of 50. I'm sure he's going to, he's going to move up and regress back on that sort of thing. And of course he can do these other things. So he's not restricted from doing these other things. But if you say you don't fear Lamar Jackson going back and passing on every play, that's fine. That's a fine thing to say. That's a, that's a valid opinion. Could be right. Could be wrong. Um, there's nuance in between, but it certainly hasn't been disproven. And it certainly isn't a good use of stats to say his averages from in the pocket, even if it's a play action and then he stays in the pocket on a first down, you know, is the same is better than Ben Roethlisberger, who was throwing from much more challenging circumstances as far as the defense knowing what he's going to do, who had a volume of more than twice the amount of throws in a season than Lamar Jackson. That's it. Again, I'm not anti-Lamar Jackson, but I have to, I end up getting this, put it in this situation a little bit because I have to kind of build, like, let's get to the truth a little bit. Let's get to the real reality of these situations. We can't have good discussions about how much Lamar Jackson is worth, what can running quarterbacks do, what everything. We can't have these discussions if we're not going to use the proper information to have the right context on these discussions. And with Lamar, there's a lot of evidence that, He's not going to be as good of a pocket passer as these other guys. Because guess what? If he was as good of a pocket passer as everyone, and he was the most athletic quarterback in the NFL, he'd be complete. He'd be winning the MVP every single season. It's not just he doesn't have receivers. It's not just he has Greg Roman. It's not just all these things. Like, he would be way up there, further than he has been the last couple of years struggling. So he has weaknesses in his games, like most people do. Not everyone has to be, you know, Patrick Mahomes or someone like that. He has weaknesses. It's okay to recognize them. It's okay to incorporate that into our analysis and still say Lamar Jackson is the top quarterback in the NFL, as I do label him in most of my analysis. All right. You know what? I'm skipping my, my stick to sports because it was going to be a little pedantic and going on here. And I'm just going to get straight into the Q&A here for anyone who stuck around this entire time. I appreciate you guys. Let's get to um, these are big. So it's going to like cut off my head when I'm doing this on YouTube. But let's try to bring it up on the screen. Actually, it's not too bad. Maybe I'll, uh, I'll rotate the screen a little bit to try to get my big head in here. OK. One man's odyssey. Interesting. Q, Q, Q&A here is. Is the NFL better at evaluating wide receivers than six years ago? Could this year's wide receiver class be like last year's class where a lot of non-JSN guys fall to later rounds despite high positional value? Um, Is the NFL better? I mean, everything gets incrementally better. But I I have trouble determining 
what we can really gather signal from when we talk about the NFL being better. I think teams have drafted better, um, but it's gone back and forth. Now, 2014 was this this draft class where it was what well, was Sammy Watkins, so that didn't work. But trading up for Sammy Watkins for for the Bills, he went first. But then it was Evans, then it was Odell Beckham Jr., then it was Brandon Cooks. Well, actually, I don't know if he was next. But Brandon Cooks in there had an excellent rookie year. Allen Robinson was in that was in that class. Kelvin Benjamin was really really good when he first started there. Uh, Jarvis Landry eventually later. Um, there are probably some other guys I'm missing, but it was like an all star sort of class. And then after that, a bunch of guys got moved up and probably got drafted too early. The next year, Amari Cooper was legit, but then it was Kevin White and Devontae Parker who went in the mid first round and Brashad Perryman who went way too early. And then there was just like misses, misses, misses over the next several years. Corey Coleman after that, not, not doing so hot. Um, Josh Doxson and, and those guys in that class, not doing so great. So a lot of misses. And then now we've started to turn around again, especially in the second round. These guys have been have been looking pretty good. So I don't know if they're any better or not, honestly. I think it's a valuable position. I think the value has gone up a lot for these positions. But I think primarily the value has gone up because the types of offenses that teams are playing are more conducive to a, a, a less steep learning curve for wide receivers, just like we've seen for for quarterbacks, they're getting a lot, a lot of reps in college, a lot of passing reps in college. They can transfer more quickly directly into the NFL. And I think that's helped these guys have guys like Justin Jefferson, you know, being extremely good right off of the bat, which happens sometimes. But like receiver has gone from being a third year breakout thing to being a second year breakout thing to being like you, you should be good as a rookie almost nowadays. So that's part of it whether they've gotten better or not, or or receivers are just being able to produce a little bit earlier, which gives you the earlier you get the signal, like the better you're going to be able to manage someone's career. Uh, So there's that I think has happened. And then the fact that these guys are making so much money now and you're able to trade them as a liquid market for being able to trade them. I think also that should boost up their value a bit. So I think guys are going to get a little bit boosted this year. I mean, maybe we'll see if they fall, I'm of two minds on that, but I think guys are going to get moved up boards a little bit more this year. I think guys were pretty high last year um, in a better class. So it'll be more like back half of the first round, but I think there's just a lot of teams in the back half of the first round who are going to want to go to the draft because it's very, very expensive to trade for someone. And if they do draft someone who's really, really good, maybe they, maybe they can even trade someone else. Like I've said that the the Bengals or someone like that should look into rather than go get a tight end. You know, go get another wide receiver, and then you have a lot of optionality with what you can do with, with T. Higgins going forward. All right. Another Q&A here. I've been cited by – I've been cited, congratulations, by unnamed NFL scout. The players in 2023 draft picks, 25 to 50, are merely fractions of a point in draft value. True or false, your thoughts? Um, let, me, let, me, let me look at this one again. The players in – 2023 draft picks 25 through 50 are merely fractions of a point in draft value. So he's saying there's just like a weak class. Oh, he wrote it again. So maybe we should pick up the second one. Um, so he's just saying, I think he's saying like the 25 to 50 are a weak class. I don't know, man. It's really tough to say in that circumstance. I'm, I, I can't even really say on that. All I know is that if we look traditionally, at where the value is, surplus value, 
peaks for non-quarterbacks around 12th, 13th pick. It's pretty good through the end of the second round. So I'd be surprised. I'd be surprised if those weren't some strong picks there. Um, thanks for the great content. I appreciate that for the question here. What are your thoughts on the Falcons offseason so far? Do you like their process since Terry Fontenot was hired in 2021? Thanks and cheers from Brazil. All right, Brazilian, my fellow uh, soccer fans out there, hopefully, in Brazil. Okay, so here's what I'll say about the Falcons. The Falcons came into one of the worst situations, and Fontenot came into one of the worst situations in the NFL. It was one that required a multi-year rebuild similar to the bears which you just do not see in the nfl anymore there was a lot of hard decisions that need to be made at the end of the thomas dimitrov era that were not made that ended up being a kind of a disaster there so with that context this offseason if you look at what they've done they're getting a lot of praise here for what they've done uh they just made another signing today bud dupree so there's a list here so bud dupree Jesse Bates, I'm fine with Jesse Bates. I mean, again, overspending on non-premium positions, I'm okay. But that was that was you know that was a big contract. Uh, Calais Campbell, uh, Jeff Akuda. I mean, he's probably a bust. Uh, so who knows there? Caden Ellis, he's pretty good linebacker and cornerback. Mike Hughes, I'm not against cornerbacks being brought in. So they got cornerbacks. They're not spending a ton of money on like a, a tackle, a left tackle, or a. Um, edge rusher or wide receiver in free agency, which is probably a mistake. So I don't mind all this stuff, (laughs) but my concern with them, and maybe this is something like I have no knowledge about, but even betting markets, I think they're the number one odds for drafting B. John Robinson at, (laughs) at at the eighth pick. So if that happens, then it all gets shot to hell. Um, I mean, I'd be looking at quarterback. I know you guys may love Desmond Ritter, but I mean, a third round pick, why not have some optionality there? So it's really a to be determined with them. I think they've had their hands tied. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Arthur Smith. You know, they have Kyle Pitts, they have Drake London, uh, and then they just don't throw the ball. I mean, do something, you know. Um, but they're in an interesting situation here with, with such a weak NFC South. I just hope they don't get suckered into it's a weak NFC South. Like, let's rather than trying to get home runs in the draft, let's build around there and see if we can squeak through with a division title or something like that. Um, not, not, not a great, not a great way to go there. Um, next here. What, what should the bears do? I assume I want them to draft JSN. They still need to upgrade their wide receiver courts. Also Mooney and Claypool are free agents after the season. Consensus has been the bears drafting an offensive lineman. So the bears are sitting Let's get to the draft here for the Bears. Now, they lost that pick because of Claypool. They drafted Vales Jones, who everyone was dunking on this week because of the uh, the athletic score that came from the analytic cylinder for anyone who saw that. They scrubbed the video, though, of the showing the behind the scenes with the Bears and what their analytics department was doing there. So the Bears are at nine right now after that trade. Hmm. You're still in that range where you can get a premium position, like a true tier one position. So I'd probably lean with the consensus there and say offensive tackle if they find a guy they like there. But if it's edge or uh, a strong interior defender, I don't know if there are many that are that high. Um, 
that are going to be left at that point. But that's where I would go. I mean, I wouldn't be against wide receiver, but I mean, Fields doesn't throw the ball. So it's kind of like, I don't know, maybe that'll change. I don't know. But I would say offensive line or, you know, get some premium position as far as a an edge rusher or something like that. Um, okay. Dr. Tough Guy. Big fan. B- big fan of uh, analytics. Um, he's, he's also humble, Dr. Tough Guy. He says, my pea brain can't handle the basic rules around quarterback drafting. Uh, e.g. trading up versus multiple kicks at the can, shooting for the ceiling versus solid college production, fifth-year option versus not reaching. Uh, do you have any quarterback drafting do's and don'ts? Well, I guess my biggest do would be every single pick look hard at it. I mean, to to a point, right? You're obviously not going to be like getting four quarterbacks who you've invested draft capital or or free agency in. But that would be my, my biggest do is at least look hard at it. I think there are lots of different ways to do it. So the reason it's confusing is because there are lots of lots of different ways to do it. Trading up for a quarterback is obviously the best possible trade-up you can have because I think people still you know, respect the market values encapsulated in the Jimmy Johnson chart or ideas of what the market value should be because let's face it, no matter how much you think a pick might be worth, you're still going to try to trade it for what you think the value is, not what you think it's fundamentally worth. It, it's, a, it's a market. So you're trying to get the value off of it. So I still don't think they've caught up quite to what these quarterback picks could be, but you know, it doesn't have to go to a quarterback. So that's why the values are a little bit lower there. Uh, fifth year option. I don't really care about it that much, you know, trading into the first round. I guess it, it gets, it's helpful to extend out a quarterback, like in the Lamar Jackson situation, they got an extra year out, out of it, but I'm not, you know, I'm not hugely, I don't, I don't find it hugely important. Probably most of the time, if you don't like a quarterback, if you like the quarterback that much, you would have drafted him earlier. Or they'll probably be around when you're waiting for them. Anyway, um, I think ceiling, I guess I would lean towards, but I don't think the ceiling is as well defined as other people think. I think it's hard to tell, like, who has a great ceiling. You look at the greatest quarterbacks ever, just to, Tom Brady look like someone who had a big ceiling? Does Drew Brees look like someone who had a big ceiling as a prospect? Does Philip Rivers look like someone who has a big ceiling? Does Matt Ryan look like someone who has a big ceiling? Does Joe Montana look like someone who had a big ceiling? Probably not for any of those guys. Did Joe Burrow even look like someone who had a pretty big ceiling? No. But, you know, it's coming. So I guess that would be whatever. Just, just draft him. Uh, okay. If you were a GM... Never going to happen, but I appreciate the thought there. Would you have your draft pool start with analytics and then filter down based off of what scouts say, or would you do it the other way around? I don't know. It's kind of like they're kind of, it's kind of impossible to separate them, I guess, is what I would say. Because I guess it would be more like you have what the scouts say, and then you have an overarching analytical philosophy when it comes to positional value, when it comes to trading value, where you're going to want to lean heavily on those things whenever you have anything close to an edge case. You know, you lean towards the um, the base rates that you have and the values that you'd establish there. So that's that's what I would say there. Um, but, you know, the thing with scouting, okay, this, this is what I'm going to talk about. I, I, 
I just don't know like how much we should be thinking more in a wisdom of crowds type of situation versus just one team scouting department. I mean, these boards are all over the place for these different teams. So that shows that even if you're relying upon multiple scouts opinions within your own organization, you probably have a high degree of overconfidence. So I would say is you have the scouts opinions. You want to have that because you're going to have stuff in there that's just not available in the public, especially especially, you know, other things like medicals and other things that you're going to add in there. So you have all that, but then I would kind of like run it through a process where you're reshuffling to a degree based upon positional value. You're reshuffling to a degree based upon not having overconfidence in the high end. That's one thing that I noticed with the, the draft board that I was building with SIS. Like they, for instance, at Edge, they had Will Anderson as a grade of 7.2. The next closest grade was three or four tenths of a point lower. And then they had a lump of players who are all, you know, within one tenth of a point. Is it really possible that one guy is three, four multiples better than everyone else in the class? When we know traditionally it's maybe a 55, 45 proposition in rank ordering of one player being better than the next. So it'd be stuff like that. Like if I had that grade, I would say, you know what? It's probably overvaluing the top guy versus these other guys. Let's run it through some sort of process where we regress that back to what we've seen historically and to the market. Um, So it it would be a combination. The scout stuff is very important. I think also when the scouts and analytics, when it really comes together is you have prior, hopefully some sort of regimented scout opinions that you've kept track of, which then you can apply going forward too, where you're not having the scouts tell you, we need to draft this player first. You're having the scouts scouts tell you, who who do we believe this player is? Let's look at those attributes. Let's compare them to what we've seen in the past from players, what ends up being successful or not, and then let's build off of that. So it's more like a data point, what the scouts are giving you, as opposed to probably more of a holistic sort of thing when you have these draft boards and big boards that are just being listed by scout grading. Um, Okay. Robert here, given the big difference in surplus value due to salary drop off and that non-quarterback positions have a fifth year option, not far off from a big contract, is the 33rd pick on the whole better than the 32nd pick? Well, it's typically seen as being that way because the salary actually drops somewhat significantly. Uh, Let me bring up Timo's old piece. Actually, you know what? Let me bring up the Ben Baldwin piece here. So for open source football, he had this piece and let me see if I can share it on here for you guys who are watching. So if you look at the open source football, you see, and it's, it's incremental, right? Like it's not, it's not huge here, but you'll see that the surplus value number bumps up between 32 and 33. Now you're losing the fifth year option. There's those considerations. I think the fifth year option discussion though, has kind of jumped the shark a little bit as far as its value, but there is a large decline in the salary. I mean, large meaning, you know, 10% decline, 15% decline in the salary when you move from the, the end of the first round to the beginning of the second round. Of course, this year, that's going to be the 32nd pick because the Dolphins don't have their pick in the first round. Um, so you do get a little bit of an incremental value at the beginning of the second round there. That's why a lot of teams, like if you look at here, according to surplus value, according to Baldwin's chart here, it's about 3% of the salary cap surplus value at 32. And then you probably get about one, two, three, four, maybe four or five picks into the second round before where you're getting a higher value than that before you drop back down again. So the guys like the Patriots, maybe the Seahawks, the other teams that were really, really good for a sustained period of time, 
they were consistently trading out of the back of the first round for teams that overvalue that fifth year option or really want to grab a player or, you know, really just like a lot of teams just really want to get two players on the first day of the draft. Everyone feels good about it. All their fans feel good. Teams that are comfortable getting zero players on the first day of the draft, moving back into the early second round, you can gain some surplus value. You can gain some draft capital. We saw the Patriots and others do that a ton as a very valuable strategy and, and, you know, probably most more teams need to be doing so. All right. Um, okay. 15, 16 and 17 draft classes were awful. Cooper and maybe Mike Williams are the only successes. Oh, this is a comment on my wide receivers. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was ugly out there. Mike Williams. I mean, Jesus, Mike Williams is a top 10 pick, right? Like he probably went a little early, but that was the same draft where Corey Davis and, um, why is his name escaping me now? The guy who broke the record for the for the forty yard dash also went in the top ten. It was it was insane. Um, okay, I got a couple more. I'm going to take here Q and A. Then I have to get out of here. One of my favorite players. This is from Darius Perry. I should have said his name earlier. This thing is, uh, one of my favorite players in the draft is Nolan Smith. How hard would it be for someone his size to fit into a four three scheme? Sorry, you got the wrong podcast here, but uh, I could tell you that that Nolan Smith, according to my my draft board here. According to uh, SIS, go check out their um, their grading here. He grades; uh, they have him graded as the second best edge rusher in the class. So I don't know. That, good luck with that. I'm sorry, I can't answer that. And then last one here from Darius Perry: When is the right time to trade up for a player? For example, if I'm at pick 25 and a player I've ranked 10 overall is falling, at what point do you think is justifiable to pull the trigger? Uh, if it's not a quarterback, probably never. Because um, okay, this is this goes back to the discussion of reaches versus value, and why. Just logically, if we think about it, Ross. Yeah, there you go, Ross. That was that was the John Ross. That was the someone someone put that there. Thank you, Dan. Um, <laughs> John Ross. Uh, boy, that was a bust. Um, maybe he switched to cornerback or something. Oh, actually, he was a cornerback and he switched to receiver and then went back. I don't know, man, it's confusing. Um, okay, so well, I forgot what I was talking about here. Okay, so we're trading up. So it's 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 part of the okay. Number one, you're always overpaying to trade up because there is inertia. That's like the the cost premium. Even if you had a complete, we don't have a completely liquid market here. This is not like stock trading. This is not like whatever. Like a team, they have inertia. They have the, they want to draft someone. They're probably overconfident in their assessments generally. We know that. So you're going to be overpaying. On average, you're overpaying. So if you're going to overpay, the only way you can really not overpay while overpaying like uh, is by taking a quarterback. That's the way you can build back that value. So like if you're trading up from, from the 20s to 10 or to 12, like in 2017, which they did for Mahomes and Watson, those are really great trade-offs because you don't have to trade a whole lot to get to 10 or to get to 12, um, even from the 20s. Because someone was talking the other day about who may trade up to three. And they're listing the Vikings and the Ravens. Like, those teams are not trading up to three. You can't trade up from the mid-20s to three. The 49ers had to trade three first-round picks, which includes the number 12, to get from 12 to three, you'd have to wait until draft day, trade four first round picks plus something else to get up from the 20s to three. If you want to move up from 25, which is right around where the Chiefs and the Texans were drafting from, 25 to 10 to get a quarterback, I like it. 
You know, if one of those guys fall, I'm fine with that. What the Bears did when they moved up from 20 to uh, 11 or whatever it was to get Justin Fields. Like, those are pretty solid trades to just give up one extra first-round pick for them. That's probably the only circumstances. And why is reaching always worse? Well, if you think, if you believe in wisdom of crowds at all, when you're moving up to reach, like you think you're reaching on a player, um, you're deciding that you believe that player is better than like everyone else. So everyone else is giving you feedback, including the team that's trading to you, right? Because they could draft the same player. Um, and the teams who were there earlier, so, like you said, you have them ranked number 10, but you just had a team drafting at 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and so on, all telling you, we don't agree with you. All these different teams telling you they don't agree with you. So for all those reasons, I'd say, just be humble. Um, and, and it's hard to say you never want to trade trade up. I would say trade up if it's – the only way you trade up is quarterback, number one. Number two, tiering. If, you, if it's a tier one position, edge, tackle – Definitely tackle. If like if you're getting the last one in a tier of those higher tier, I'm using tier twice here. If there's a tier drop within the high value positions, that's a possibility. Um, but I do think when teams try to outthink themselves, like we're going to jump over someone else who we think is going to take the same player. I remember Andre Dillard was that situation for the Eagles a number of years ago. Everyone was high-fiving each other about the fact they jumped over to the Texans to go get him. And, and, you know, he stunk. So you just never know. Stay humble. Stay humble, everyone. That's what I would say. All right. Thanks so much. This is a very longer Q&A because I never know what's going to happen here for everyone here. So I appreciate everyone tuning in, listening, you know, podcast and otherwise. Hopefully you found the other sections of the podcast. Good. Go subscribe uh, on your favorite podcast platform. Go to YouTube. Figure that out. Uh, And then, of course, the sub stack. Pay the bills here. Got to pay the bills. I appreciate everyone signing up. Lots of signups in the last couple of weeks. So I really appreciate that. Unexpectedpoints.substack.com. Otherwise, I'll be talking to everyone next week. Hopefully, we'll have the S2 when the S2 founders. But if not, I may have to uh, pivot to another draft-focused interview. Anyway, I'll be talking to everyone later. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.